Welcome to Martial Wisdom. Here you can listen to conversations on all kinds of topics related to martial arts. In today's episode, I'm thrilled to have Remy Helgeson back on the show. We're going to talk about real-world violence and how it applies to Aikido training. Two major things that I want to mention before we get started today. First, I want to express my heartfelt thanks to the listeners who have donated through the PayPal tip jar. Your contributions are greatly appreciated. It's the love of the martial arts which keeps us doing what we do, and at the same time, it's true for producing the content that I do on this channel. Thank you very much for your support. Second, it's been several years now since I launched the Spirit Aikido online program. Releasing new videos every few days over that time has resulted in a very large library of material. There are currently over 315 videos in the program, with more being added constantly. This is a great way for you to get training and practice ideas which I've gathered from my own Aikido training, gleaned from other instructors, and taken from other arts. In the most recent videos I've covered reliable and powerful choke defenses, head control techniques, and dealing with a flailing attacker, something which is very relevant to the topic of today's podcast. If you've been curious to see breakdowns of how I approach my Aikido on the mat, the videos in the Spirit Aikido online program are the best way to go. You get a great deal of content and help support the show at the same time. I encourage you to check it out. There's a link in the description. I hope you enjoy this episode. Now, on with the discussion. Welcome back to Modern Aikido's podcast and Martial Wisdom. Uh, I'm thrilled to have uh, Alessandra back to have another great discussion. And uh, we had a couple of, what is it, a couple of months ago now, we had a really great conversation about uh, did Aikido come from the Japanese battlefield? And uh, a lot of you had some great comments about that. Uh, today, we're going to talk about a related comment or related belief of what Aikido is uh, right down to its, its core philosophy, and that is it is defensive only in nature. Um, and this is something that practitioners and even non-Aikido people view Aikido as, as it's reactive, it's, pure, it's de defensive only. And we wanted to get get deep into that. So welcome back, Alice. It's great to have you back. Thank you. Um, well, I kind of want to split up the topics today a little bit with, uh, we're going to talk about the spiritual side, which is kind of the philosophy of Aikido being defensive in nature, and then the, how it expresses itself physically, because they're, they're intertwined. In fact, I don't even think you could separate them. Um, but the, the implications are huge if you make that assertion that Aikido is only defensive in nature. Um, so I guess we can pick a number of starting points, but um, I guess perhaps history would be a good one because this, this topic really does relate to our discussion of where did Aikido come from? What is the source of it? Did it come from the battlefield? Um, and of course, you talk about a battlefield, you have a mindset, a spirit of what it's like to prevail on a battlefield. But we've now translated and come far enough that that the Aikido martial art is largely a civilian art. It's not a military art. Um, did, I don't think Takeda, Sakaku Takeda had much of an influence in terms of thinking of his art as defensive. Maybe that's a good place to start. What, what, uh, what do you think? Well, actually, let me even go back a little further. Oh, great. Uh, that's good. Um, so I think the first misunderstanding, I may have covered this in the previous uh podcast, so I'll, I'll keep it short, is the idea that the classical martial arts, the old Yuha, were warfare arts. And there's no evidence 
to establish that. In the Warring States period, uh, probably, a, a, I believe it was Carl Friday, that was a professor of history, uh, stated that in the Warring States period, there's no evidence of more than 5% of Bushi warriors joining any Duha. Hmm. So 95% were going to war, were fighting in war, and they didn't join the Duha. Did they have some sort of what we would consider today like a boot camp where they were conscripts were taken and they were trained in a very brief amount of time with simple tools, that sort of thing? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And there was probably in your villages or whatever, there was exchange and things like that. But the formalization of the Duha is primarily a, a peacetime phenomenon. And I think one interesting simile is, I remember reading, I don't know if it's true anymore, but over 50% of special ops American warfighters, uh, so-called Green Beret, Navy SEAL, et cetera, uh, in childhood were members of the Boy Scouts. Hmm. So it is the Boy Scouts of warfare art, hmm. right? right? Right. But it's very clear that the um, values of scouting uh, in terms of personal responsibility, uh, becoming at home in nature, being resourceful, all of that stuff. Integrity, that's those things. Yeah. Um, uh, all of that contributed to making a, uh, a the kind of person who would become an elite warfighter. Hmm. So similarly, and I, you I know, just... Kind of the Boy Scouts, I remember reading, because uh, I was involved in, you know, medieval type recreation stuff for a long, long time. And I guess the I'd read this, that the founder of the Boy Scouts, he really wanted to take the code of chivalry and kind of modernize it to teach young young boys the, the virtues of integrity and honesty and, and uh, you know, the, basically what was considered the knightly virtues. And he sort of repackaged them in a modern model for, you know, children to learn as well as learn the practical skills of, you know, all the things the original scouts did and, yeah. and that sort of thing. And, you know, it's something sorely needed today. I, I have a friend named Jim Hernandez who is doing something very similar in the inner city where he teaches children a series of values and they get an identity out of these values. They have a necklace with 13 beads for the 13 values. Mm -hmm. And so to counter gang culture, um, you need to be able to affiliate with an organization with a different code. And so he's done wonderful work with kids doing something like that. Um, okay, so we're a little far afield, but sure. the, the point is, is that the Duha from their inception, certainly they taught fighting skills, mm -hmm. but it was at core a means of social education. Uh, it educated people in their role as a warrior who primarily was now part of the ruling class and supporting the ruling class of Japan. And so Kenshin Shoden Katori Shintoryu, one of the oldest uh, still extant schools, has this phrase, heiho wa heiho nari. And so that's a, a pun. Heiho usually means military tactics. Mm. But if you change the character, you can make it the way of peace. Mm. So from the very beginning, uh, Shinto Ryu, which, you know, a lot of people trumpet, oh, this is the warfare art, the epitome of it. They're talking about the your training to establish peace. Okay? And there are quotes of various, so I'm going I'm to jump, just saying that sort of imbues 
uh, most of the duha. There are moral teachings. Uh, just before we got on, I was uh, I was going through uh, some documents in Tenshin Bukodyu, one of the schools that I uh, train in, mm -hmm. uh, and there was a phrase that essentially says, I wish I could quote it exactly, but essentially, courage is not enough. Mm -hmm. Courage without morality is valueless and not really courage to begin with. Essentially, that's what they're saying. And so the the Duha were, in essence, Confucianism in practice. And Confucianism is a code of behavior, some of which we modern Westerners may not agree with. It was very patriarchal, et cetera, et cetera. But it was a code of moral behavior by which people could live. And I think a very important way to think of the old martial arts is this was a way to teach warriors, people by um, family culture, by social culture, want to fight and to channel that in the service of the society they live. So from the very beginning, there is this streak of we're not just training to commit mayhem, to kill people, to loot and murder and all the rest. Um, it's in service of something. What's interesting is even in Daitodio, uh, there are quotes that the essence of Aikijutsu is love. Uh, it doesn't start, I don't know who came first, right? Because it could be Daitodio saw that's working for Aikido and they brought it into, I don't know. All right. But the Takeda Sokaku is such a complex figure, but I remember reading that nobody ever got in, injured during his practices. Mm -hmm. Really interesting, isn't it? He's, he's sure. the brute by which Aikido transcended. Mm -hmm. People didn't get injured. Um, he taught judges, officials, all, all sorts of elite people. And if all he was teaching was um, there's this phenomena of modern, quote, combatives, some of which are how, how, to, how to kill somebody with a knife in 17 different ways. And it doesn't go any further than that. Sure. Right? If that's what he was teaching, he would have been a social pariah. Mm -hmm. And yet he taught tens of thousands of people of very high status. So uh, the, the issue of defensive is, is uh, sort of downstream a little bit. But the issue of uh, martial arts being expected to contribute to the well-being of society, uh, the well-being of the people who practice it, to some degree to enable people within society to live together, that's there from the very beginning. And when Ueshiba Morihei walked into the inn where he first met Takeda Sokaku, that was already present in what he was going to learn. Sure. Yeah, and, and I, you know, I, I've worked with with some mentors that have, like you, have studied a great deal of martial history, and I think it's a modern misunderstanding that old school training was harder and tougher, and it resulted in a lot of injuries because it was not it not blunted down the way modern training tends to be. But there, we have to look at it through a little bit of a different lens, and that is. And one of, one of my mentors is talk, talks about like how did wrestling develop through uh, you know usually it was 
Um, well, I mean, wrestling and grappling go back, you know, many centuries, but training in it <clears throat> up until probably the late part of the 20th century, most people that trained in grappling usually had a, a blue collar job. They did not have a lot of money. If they were injured and couldn't go to their job the next day, they were losing money. And so training could not be abusive or injurious because it would mean they would starve. And I mean, even people like Jack Dempsey and stuff would talk about, you know, they worked in the mines and he fought to feed himself. He said, I would go into win a fight because <clears throat> if I didn't win that fight, I didn't eat. And so, you know, in that age, it, same thing would apply that if you're, if you're injured and banged up because you've trained so hard, now you, you can't make your money. And, you know, I think to a certain degree, we've, in our modern age, we've gotten pretty spoiled when it comes to, you know, people making money and you can work you know, on a computer so you can have a torn up shoulder and you can still be productive and not, or have some kind of a financial buffer where you can get paid sick, sick time and things like that. But, uh, you know, it was pretty common misunderstanding, I think, that in history that, that training was much harder and, and everybody was getting all hurt. Um, you know, in my opinion, anybody, any instructor that does that is more of a sadist than an actual real instructor. They should not be hurting students and, and whatnot even. And I think that's throughout time. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that modern age is enlightened any, any more than in Decada, uh, Sakaku's time. Uh, I mean, that's just kind of my impression. There's going to be in different cultures, there's going to be a different tolerance, <coughs> excuse me, for a level of injury as part of practice. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the purest examples anybody can find is the Nuba people of uh, Southern Sudan for whom wrestling is a sacrament. And it's a lot like sumo. It's pretty rough. But there are, there are rules. There are things you do. There are things you don't do. Um, combative sports gives people the option of training full out without hesitation. Safety equipment. You know, kendo developed hundreds of years ago. Now, once you put in safety equipment and do make it a sport, you can start changing the techniques. And so there's that argument that never will end. The difference between is pattern drill or freestyle better for effectiveness as if you can't do both. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, uh, it's certainly true that if, if you have techniques that are unavoidable, the, uh, you, done effectively, you can't avoid injury then um, you're going to have to find some way to modulate them to make it safe, right? Daitoryu prides itself on the fact, well, when we throw people, we throw them straight down so they end up on their head. Mm -hmm. That's true, but what happens in practice? They find a way to protect their training partners so everybody doesn't walk out with a concussion. Or a broken neck. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And maybe a little later, I'll talk about Doshu teaching those techniques. So, um, yeah, sure. but yeah. So I think we start with that, that um, uh, Takeda Sokaku framed things in a way, but the main, I, you know, I think the main, the main distinction between Takeda Sokaku's Daitoryu and um, Aikido was Ueshiba's focus on a particular kind of spiritual endeavor that he associated with Aikido. Mm -hmm. It wasn't 
The one was the, the way when I first got into Aikido that I heard that, well, Takeda taught killing techniques and he was a brute and Ueshiba, you know, made this peaceful and he was better anyway. So, um, you know, can we take a break for one second? Because I'm like half dark and half light now. Sure. Yeah, yeah. If you want to cool. make adjustment, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Let me do that. Just a second. Um, let's figure out how to move. With video, lighting is always a challenge. And just, so, just like sound can be a challenge, too. Yeah. There we go. Is that better? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. All right. And yeah, I will move around as need be. Sure, right. sure. Um, yeah, it, it looks to me also like because, and I, forgive me if I misunderstood this, but I don't think Sakaku Takeda was ever in the military or or served in a in a theater of war. Is that correct? Um, it's a little more complex than that. Okay. So when he was a child, um, was the Boshin Senso, the where the there was the war between. Uh, uh, it was like America's civil war mm -hmm. between the factions supporting the emperor and the factions supporting the shogun. Takeda was a small child, and at least the accounts that we have is he was an eight-year-old boy running around a battlefield, looking at corpses, looking literally at people roasting uh, the meat of, uh, because there are no provisions, of the key people they killed. Mm. So you know, in, in my book, Hidden in Plain Sight, I have a chapter about if, if this history is accurate, uh, a lot of Takeda's subsequent behavior, it certainly makes sense that you have a, a child traumatized by war, mm. witnessing mayhem. Mm. Uh, he did not join the military. When he was older and the, um, the rebellion of Saigo Takamori, occurred that was uh, 1877 I think anyway he wanted to go to fight and uh, to join up and through the collusion of a couple of his teachers he visited a dojo and they kind of delayed him until it was too late to go because they cared about him and they didn't want him to just lose his life um, there is a famous event where he was walking with this very long sword over, I don't know if he had it over his shoulder or at his waist. And he was less than five feet tall. And a bunch of construction workers started laughing at him, you know, and they were basically saying, looks like a sword is taking a midget for a walk. And uh, he said something back. And before you know it, the construction workers attacked him. And they were throwing rocks at him. They had what are called tobiguchi, which is basically uh, kind of a something between an axe and a pick mm -hmm. and any number of other construction weapons. And he killed about 10 of them in the fight. Mm -hmm. This one, as far as I understand, this one's well documented. Uh, he was actually tried for murder, found innocent because he was attacked first. He almost died. Uh, he was on the ground and he was rescued by an uncle who was of elite social status who managed to stop this. Um, there's a number of other stories of him being in personal combat, but they are so hard to tell are these legend or not. Sure. No one knows. Mm. But so he 
he definitely saw um, experienced hand-to-hand combat. Mm. Uh, he definitely witnessed the horror of war as a child. Um, he didn't serve in the military itself. Okay. Yeah, I, I wonder. I've heard some pretty, uh, pretty crazy stories of his kind of his level of paranoia and his high level of awareness all the time, and and uh, having personal experiences like that. You know, I suppose you could say he may have put himself into that by maybe he talked trash with these construction workers or just didn't ignore them or what have you. But having those types of experiences and that kind of trauma, I think, can may have contributed to him being kind of an erratic, uh, maybe maybe not erratic, not the right word, but uh, being slightly paranoid. I'd heard that anybody that walked into a room, he would immediately like uh, turn and face them or he didn't like uh, people coming up on him by surprise, you know, things like that. He stabbed his own child for putting a blanket on it. Really? His son okay. was that seven one years heard. old and saw his dad asleep and he tried to put a blanket on him. Takeda wakes up and stabs him and the child basically moved out of the way and he got stabbed in the shoulder. Tokimuni mm. tells that story himself. Mm. So um, That's a pretty high-strung fellow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, And the tragedy of paranoia is people mistake. They say, oh, well, okay, a person who's a real warrior has got to have that level. No. The tragedy of paranoia is you don't know what to be afraid of, so you're afraid of everything. Mm-hmm. It's the difference between, like, if, if you go in the woods um, and you're not comfortable with the natural world, every sound you make, you say, oh, my God, it's it's a bear it's a it's a a giant spider whatever right um if if that is your environment and you're comfortable you're able to sort out the sounds most of the sun guys nothing Uh uh-oh better climb a tree right Mm -hmm. and so the person who is at home in the world is not paranoid and and that's the thing that i think about um takeda that he was unhomed uh, he couldn't settle anywhere. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't change the fact. I mean, uh, to me, I've always thought that Takeda Sokaku's um, creation, and that's what I think it is, his creation of Daitoryu was a means for him to maintain human contact with people and contribute something to the world, even though he's a profoundly unhomed and in some ways isolated person. It became, you know, I, I one time was doing an assessment on a uh, an autistic child. Um, and actually, he'd been misdiagnosed. And so I was following him around school. I would watch him in his classes, trying to figure out what was wrong, because they had him on all sorts of meds that he turned out he didn't need. But this child couldn't make eye contact with any of the other kids. He was like uh, eight years old. But what he would do is he had a little monkey in his backpack. And he would walk up to each kid like this and he would hand him the monkey. And the kids were very tolerant of him as a cloth monkey. And they would sort of do this and then they'd hand it back and he'd take it back and then he'd go on to the next kid. And so this cloth doll was his means to have human contact with other kids in a way that he could tolerate. It was, you know, it was, it was just beautiful and heartbreaking at the same time. Um, 
I see, you know, and I may be overstating and some people might disagree, but I see Takeda's creation of Daitoryu, among other things, that was his way to stay in contact with the world and offer something. Sure. Yeah, and it, and it seems that, you know, his assemblage of kind of what he put together, I think, and this is going to, we're going to get into this more when we talk about the physical side, but it seems like the ability to control somebody, take control of somebody's body through immobilizing it or, you know, the, the, whether it's the joint locks or some, and I know Dieter has a lot of really great, um, and even, boy, it looks even complex ways of tying up limbs and, and locking mm -hmm. an entire body down, um, would seem to, to maybe cater to that side of him that, you know, it, clearly practicality was high on his list. And anybody mm -hmm. I think that survived real violence or, or engaged in it understands and kind of keeps that principle in, at heart of this has to be functional and capable. I'm not just doing this to play around or to look cool or to, you know, there needs to be a, my life could be on the line because he obviously became very close to dying. And I think that's a, that's a practical thing that I would imagine anybody that's faced that kind of life-threatening situation, much less repeatedly, would always have underlying, wouldn't you say? I agree. I agree. Um, so now we get, I guess, to to Morahai and and his his experience, and it, it's interesting to hear Sakaku and what clearly sounds like trauma that was based in witnessing and experiencing violence himself. Did Morahai experience the same thing? I, the one that, that thing that that comes to my mind is yes, he he was in the military and he did go to China during a war. Although I understand he did not see as much battlefield uh, time as mo many people think that he did. But I did read that he was captured with some other people and nearly executed. Um, okay, so first cover of that. all, <laughs> Morihei was uh, a rear echelon motherfucker. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, he did not go to the front lines. He apparently was a drill instructor slash bayonet instructor. Mm -hmm. So the story goes. Uh, Japan during those wars uh, was not nearly as terribly behaved as they were in World War II, but they still were pretty awful. And so I don't know how much Ueshiba might have seen of the effect on the civilian population or whatever. I don't know that. Uh, but that was um, well before his, you know, mar almost all of his martial arts career. Um, so he did serve in the military. He did not serve in the front lines. I know so that, that, let me just jump in too, because I know that one very common story that I've heard repeatedly was he claims that because of some kind of insight that he had, he could see the golden path of a bullet before it mm. went that path. And he would just get out of the way of these like rays of light, like laser beams. And that's how he avoid. But it, wouldn't that assume that he would have, have had exposure to a battlefield or been been shot at or, you know, have somebody firing a firearm at him? So it kind of feels like more myth to me than, than yeah. incredible, <laughs> incredible um, claim. Um, so... In 1924, um, Deguchi Onisaburo, who was his spiritual leader, 
got this idea. And this is a, a, a really long story, so I'm going to keep it short. But he decided that he was going to uh, usher in a messianic age starting in uh, Mongolia. And he was actually behind the scenes. He was trying to manipulate, but was also being manipulated by the Kokodukai. And the Kokodukai was a, a civilian slash military political organization, which could be considered the Japanese equivalent of Al-Qaeda. It had definite political aims. They used terrorism. They were, some of them, idealists. It's very complex. Mm -hmm. um, but they wanted Deguchi to go to China mm -hmm. because they had this incredible insight, which is every Japanese citizen who went to the mainland could serve a purpose. Every prostitute would hear something. Mm -hmm. Any candy salesman going through a village would notice who was favorable to the Japanese and who wasn't. And so you might even think of it as a spider web where everything was a message back to the center, which would tell them more about the countries that they intended to conquer. And so Deguchi's uh, uh, messianic grandiose expedition, that's all great. And so there were members of the Kokodukai in his entourage. Um, by the way, if anybody in the Kokodukai Black Dragon Society, it does not mean something from Game of Thrones. It's a cool name, but it refers to the Black Dragon River, the Amur River, which was the enforced boundary between China and Russia that the Russians forced on the Chinese in a period of weakness. Mm. So, okay. um, so Deguchi has this little entourage. He declared himself the Dalai Lama, and he declared his barber to be the Panchen Lama, and Ueshiba was part of this entourage. They go and visit Oh, the warlord of northern China, Chantolin, I may have mispronounced that, for which mm -hmm. I'm sorry. He was one of the great figures of 20th century China. He was running at that time in Manchuria. And for whatever reason, Song thought, okay, let him go, and gave him the support of one of his generals and about a thousand military people. Mm -hmm. So the way this story is usually told is, Deguchi and Ueshiba and five or six other people were traveling around from place to place, you know, in this like kind of like journey of the West, the monkey king kind of thing. Mm. Right. Okay. Um, in fact, they were with a militia of about a thousand people. Hmm. When they hit the Manchurian Mongolian border, they decided to cross it. The general decided, you know what? I don't need Song anymore. I could form my own kingdom. Song hears about this, chases them down, kills, executes, I believe, all thousand of the Chinese Manchurian soldiers and the general. Mm. Those, if he didn't execute them, they were basically, you know, integrated in other units, but basically destroyed them. Mm. He was going to, now, according to the accounts of, um, that Ueshiba gave or his writers gave, during this period before they were crushed there were episodes they fought bandits or something like this mm -hmm. there's no evidence one way or the other did this happen did this not were there skirmishes with other militias because northern china at that time was full of what they called redbeards and redbeards was originally a term to refer to the cossacks over the border 
It then became a slang expression for outlaws. Hmm. And there were thousands of these outlaws, different bands who some of them were pure pirates, just predating on the villages. Others were self-defense forces, uh, you know, sort of quasi-militia. So there may have been some battles. Ueshiba may have, you know, actually been shot at. I don't know. But then at the end, they were facing a firing squad. And one of the great bandits of that period was a Japanese guy named Kohinata Hakuro. What incredible figure. You know, just he was a kid, he went to China. He basically became an outlaw king led thousands, if not tens of thousands of people. He became aware that Ueshiba et al, actually uh, Deguchi et al, were going to be executed. And he passed the word along both to the Japanese legation and to Tsang that it wouldn't be good to execute Japanese citizens. Hmm. That's what saved Deguchi. That's what saved Ueshiba. So they were facing the potential of a firing squad. And interestingly, Ueshiba and Kohinata maintained a relationship where Ueshiba was definitely the one in debt for the rest of their lives. There's some stuff I'm going to be writing about later about some late life episodes. Um, uh, Kohinata is a very complex figure, and so let's, we'll leave it there. But yeah, Ueshiba, so every account goes, was facing the potential of a firing squad. Maybe there were some skirmishes, but he was part of an entourage of over a thousand military. Sure. That's and I mean, that the idea that you're captured and you understand that you're about to be shot and executed would have to be terrifying to anybody. And I'm certainly... Uh, I would be pretty certain that he was not such a cool character that that never affected his his mindset for the rest of his life. It more than likely did. I mean, that's those are the ingredients of PTSD, really. Well, you know, here's an interesting thing. Um, Diguchi Onisaburo was kind of like, if anybody knows the Bhagwan Rajneesh or Gurdjieff, these kind of um, narcissistic godmen who sort of play with other people and he definitely played with Ueshiba and one of the things that he said in an interview that when they were facing the firing squad Ueshiba was terrified mm. and he's basically saying I wasn't and mm. he said yeah because he was a martial artist and martial artists are more sensitive to things I mean that's a pretty broad stroke. Talk about slip, slip, slipping the stiletto in. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, but you know what? If he was scared, do, how dare anybody blame him? You know, he's well, about yeah. to die. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so I, that's, I've always wondered and speculated whether or not uh, Morahai had some latent PTSD issues from his exposure in China and from that experience of nearly being executed, captured and executed. It, it sounds like the landscape there was quite violent and it was not mm. really any kind of a picnic. Um, if there were these, you know, the, the bandits essentially around and there, there was, you know, essentially the potential of violence around any corner, um, you know, even though he was not a frontline soldier, yeah. you know, certainly had to be stressful. Well, here's what I would say about that, you know, 
part of my trait is I am a clinician. Mm-hmm. And PTSD is a term which has become a vernacular term. Sort of like I'm depressed. People say I'm depressed and they say I'm sad, right? I'm blue. Whereas depression is something very different. Depression is like you pull the plug on the world and all the colors run out. All you got left is gray and no hope. So PTSD requires symptoms. It requires intrusive memories. It includes uh, uh, um, an exaggerated startle reflex. Uh, It includes uh, kinds of flashbacks where um, uh, events that are similar or even um, an experience is similar. So let's say uh, you're facing a firing squad and uh, somebody was burning plastic nearby. And the next time you smell burning plastic, you get into full terror, right? right? There is no evidence that anybody has presented as a way of showing those kind of true PTSD symptoms. Mm-hmm. It has to be important to him, part of his formation. Um, uh, but uh, I, I, I'd hesitate to say that everything he did was a result of PTSD because, you know, I found in my reading of a of his history, he's very consistent. Mm. He wasn't that different before that experience from after that experience. Mm. Yeah. Um, contrary to the way, I mean, he talks about, you know, an enlightenment experience when he was sparring with this guy. Mm. Um, but in terms of his behavior, in terms of the way he framed his worldview, it didn't really change. Yeah, because, you know, I have seen a lot of known veterans myself that, you know, usually they go to war when they're younger. And uh, that experience, when they return, they have a greater appreciation for peace and a greater appreciation Mm -hmm. for stability and not wanting to have what they experienced be uh, part of the part of society or part of their their life experience. And I wonder if Morahai had something similar to that. You know can't get in his head, but I wouldn't be surprised. Right. right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, mean, I, I think, that... I think striving for peace or wanting stability is, is maturity, uh, to, to mm-hmm. want instability or violence or to, uh, you know, become a fan of using in- intimidation and, and threats and, and actual violence to get what you want, I think is, uh, not very mature. It's barbaric. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which I, I think is a good segue into um, some questions about specifically the spiritual side. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what we know is that uh, was always interested in spirituality. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a young man, he tr- studied Shingon Buddhism, which is an esoteric form of Buddhism, um, which has uh, the viewpoint that you can be enlightened in this lifetime. And they use skillful means. Uh, skillful means could be any activity which would assist you in seeing through illusory existence, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm speaking from what I've read, not from any knowledge myself. But at any rate, there was, they have a number of ritual practices, which, by the way, were incorporated into the Omotokyo he later did, and the same practices were rewritten as being Shinto. Hmm. So his consistent spiritual experience, it really... Throughout his life, it was that, Shingon Buddhism, not Zen at all, by the way. He didn't like Zen. Uh, but Shingon Buddhism, 
into Omotokyo. So he found Omotokyo, which is kind of interesting. His father was dying. And by all accounts, he really loved his dad. Um, so he has one of those times of real vulnerability. He also has a tremendous amount of stress because he's studying with Takeda Sokaku. And say what you will, that was, as a student, that would have been a very, very stressful experience because Takeda taught by the principle that you're always wrong. And that proves I love you. Because mm -hmm. if I didn't love you, I wouldn't tell you you were wrong. So I'm going to criticize you incessantly. Mm -hmm. right. So he's got all that stress. His dad dies. And then he finds not only Deguchi, but he finds an alternative to Japan. He finds what was actually being developed as a kind of heaven on earth. Uh, it was a kind of a commune. They had built beautiful buildings. They had they were fostering the arts. They were pioneering movies, mostly movies of Deguchi pretending to be different gods. But um, they, they, it was it was a remarkable kind of new age, if you will, phenomena. And Ueshiba was certainly ripe for a conversion at that point. Hmm particularly because, again, the religious frame was the same, a lot of the same rituals he got from Buddhism, but now it was a native Japanese religion, not a foreign religion. Remember that Buddhism was a foreign religion. And actually in the Meiji period, there was a, they didn't go so far as pogroms, but there was a really anti-Buddhism movement where they closed down a lot of temples because it wasn't native Japanese. Mm -hmm. So now Ueshiba had a frame for his spiritual ideas that was ostensibly native Japanese. He also had a guru who could tell him what to do. And for most of Ueshiba's life, he needed somebody to tell him what to do. He had Takeda, then he had Deguchi. <clears throat> and then his solution to that was to become his own guru eventually. Hmm. Okay. So, yeah, and I, and I think that this... This segues, like you said, really well, and it, it kind of touches on the something, another core principle of, of Aikido, which is that that harmony part. Thank you. Perfect. I was just thinking the same thing. Yeah, and I think there are so many misunderstandings about the word harmony, whether it's mm -hmm. the Japanese translation or even just the English one, where people often mistake it for meaning tranquility, like the goal is to be tranquil and to be peaceful, which obviously is the ultimate goal, but it's not, that's not the process to get there. And I, the, the create harmonizing, I think maybe this is the next thing we talk about is how does that relate to the defensive? Cause that, that is what we're mm -hmm. getting to is the whole thing wrapping up is, is defensive alone harmonizing or is it accepting? Right. So, um, the first thing is harmony is, when we think of harmony, we think of music, mm -hmm. right? And we think of a chord that is in harmony, so to speak. Nice sound. Um, the actual, a better translation is coordination. Mm -hmm. And what needs to be understood is, and people skew one side or the other on this, um, when we're talking about what we call harmony and we could call coordination, He's talking about the coordination of the opposing forces in the universe, which is yin-yang, or this framed in Japanese, izanagi and izanami, the uh, female and male deities that created Japan. And so the one aspect of that is 
harmonizing the, and coordinating, me, coordinating those forces within one's body. And that's the whole discussion about um, internal strength, Aiki, and all of that. And this is where Tohei kind of put the mind-body unification label, I think, to that. Because that's what it reminds me of when you mention that internal coordination. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and Tohei took it in a slightly different direction because of this influence he had. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, the name escaped me right now. But the, Shin, the founder of Shinshin Toyitsu. Mm -hmm. I've forgotten his name right now come back to it but nonetheless yeah tohei was in, influenced very much by ueshiba in that ueshiba had a more sophisticated understanding which was hard to for us to grasp because he he described it in these very arcane religious uh, neo shinto terms mm -hmm. what it really comes down to is um it is coordination of all the forces within one's body the idea being which would, you know, when he would say, I am the universe, you know, he's really talking about if I'm coordinated, I can make you do what I want. Mm. Right. Uh, so that's the one side. And some people skew totally to that and then ignore the fact that we should also talk about coordination or harmonization with other people. Mm. Okay. Uh, uh, now, many partisans of the second view is harmony. Yes, it's peace and love. I harmonize with your disordered heart. Um, and through my movement and technique, I uh, respond to you and lead you to a path of peace. Right? That's that one frame. But there's no doubt that Ueshiba was talking about being able to, and here's an important word, not come to peace, establish peace. That is a good distinction. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so who's in control here? Right. If you and I are having a dispute and I say, shh, and you quiet, I establish peace between us. You may resent me, I don't know. But, right. you know, in other words, that would only work if I was in the position of power. And so one of the things that Ueshiba maintained to his dying day is peace is established through being the powerful person in the room. You know, it's funny, and I'm glad you said that because it reminds me of something I heard from uh, a senior of mine many years ago. And I've never heard this before anywhere, but he's, he said, Ueshiba Morhai was, he, it was his desire to be able to beat anybody, like to have the ambition to physically dominate anybody. And what you talk about there brings that to, to life. But I've never read that any, you know, in any book or have heard that before. But from my experience in competition, you don't get to that a supreme level of excellence without the will to do it. It's, you don't just have such incredible talent that you're just really great at dominating other people unless it's your intention to, to do that through and it that comes out for you through years of training and you're, you're yeah some people are a little bit more talented than others but it's largely the will the intention and that's what makes me think that that what you're talking about is exactly right that and maybe what my what I was told was correct that his ability to to dominate people and be successful with many of these uh, physical confrontations that he had was it was not accidental and it was not just an uh, a talent he was granted it was his will that he wanted that oh no he trained he trained insanely hard yeah yeah that's the first thing the mm -hmm. second thing where this gets lost or confused is there's a lot of teaching in japanese swordsmanship about um uh 
in fact, again, this is in my Bukodu documents. And again, if I can quote it fairly accurately, um, you cannot defeat others unless you master yourself. That's the first line. Mm -hmm. and then it says, a distinction between yourself and another is stupid. There is no self, there is no other. And that sounds really cool. But the first sentence is the key. Mm -hmm. In other words, you can't eliminate that distinction. So you are pure flow, pure action, mm -hmm. unless you've mastered yourself. And that's not just meditating. That's be a master of the skill. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, it's like, if you will, in Iwama, they're basically saying, what we don't like about Tokyo is they go to the second part of that sentence without doing the first part. And sure. one can have one's quibbles about the Iwama style or whatever, mm -hmm. but they say basic movement, basic movement, basic movement. And yeah, and, and I can see a lot of Aikido, a lot of modern Aikido really goes after the first and then ignores the second or doesn't. That's too. Excuse me. I'm yeah. moving out of the light here. Yeah, yeah. The sun's chasing you. Yeah. Yeah. So, so at any rate, um, when Oishibu was talking about harmony, there's a lot of levels to this, which are levels people don't either want to look at or haven't seen. Another level of this is, remember the phrase, greater Asian co-prosperity sphere. Asia will be harmonized under the rule of its elder brother, Japan. That was another, and, another golden gem that... that I uh, came across years ago was Weishibu because everybody thinks like he was this just benevolent old man that just, hey, let's all get along and let's harmonize with the universe. But it's that as long as we're ruled by the Japanese, like that, that kind of takes away a bit of that peaceful harmony thing when that flavor is, is added in. Right. And, the, and the, there's a the thing is if, if, if you object and I am right, if I'm an idealist and some of the most dangerous people in the world are idealists, if I'm an idealist and I know the way to world peace and you, with whatever good intentions you may have, are interfering with that, you need to be eliminated. Mm -hmm. So to, to his dying day, Ueshiba was a Japanese nationalist. Mm -hmm. um, that is one aspect of harmony. Another aspect is at the same time, he had a sincere belief that humanity could live in a state of balance, harmony, peace, all of that. And he saw Aikido, his teaching of Aikido as a vehicle for that. For example, when Terry Dobson, who was truly a lost soul, um, uh, was started training at the Hombu Dojo. Describe what you mean by lost soul. Terry was, uh, um, he got out of the military um, not combat, the guy of the military. He was psychologically a mess. He moved to Japan, uh, had an affair with some farmer's wife, which was he thought was secret, but everybody in the village knew about it. The wife's husband handed him a pistol and said, you're going to need this, which basically means, why don't you kill yourself? Mm. And he goes to Tokyo, intending to just see what Tokyo was like, and if he didn't see something interesting, he intended to go back and shoot himself in the head in a village in Japan. And he's sitting at, I think, a, a, a udon stand. And the story he tells, and I have no reason to ever doubt him on this, this flyer blew on his leg. 
and it was an Aikido demonstration. Hmm. He'd done some judo, you know, he'd done some American football and all, but he'd done some judo. So, he, you know, and so he's curious and he goes there and it was Yamada Yoshimitsu. And Terry was just enthralled. This is like the answer to my dilemma in life. And he followed Yamada back to the Aikikai, to the Hombu. And Yamada's like, get away from me. And he kept following him. And he just started hanging around. And he started, you know, uh, it's, it's a longer story, but the essence of it was, um, I think Tamura Sensei recommended him for an Uchideshi, saying mm -hmm. he's always around, so why don't we just let him live here? Everybody else opposed it. And Ueshibu Morihei said, no, he's in. So the Japanese nationalists, spiritually addled, whatever, he was a big enough human being to say this guy is in. So, you know, whenever people want to nail Ueshiba as this or that, what's fascinating about him, he was all those things. He was a right-wing nationalist. He did agree with the Japanese war aims. Uh, he was horrified by what happened to Japan through that war. He did see Aikido as a vehicle for making the world a better place. All that's true. Harmony was, or coordination, was a training in Aiki, a skill that was common to Daitoryu and Aikido. And he learned it very explicitly from, you know, whatever way he learned it, he learned it through Daitoryu. He then reworked the explanations so they supported his own religious pretensions or religious beliefs, spiritual beliefs. And he saw the technique done properly as a means of harmony. The problem is, because he didn't explain it, people saw harmony as a dance, reciprocal dance back and forth. And what he was saying was, harmony will occur when I totally control you because of my coordination and I will establish that control. That's a great description. Because I, I think it, it really come, brings to light the, the, and this is yet another belief that Aikido is about being a pacifist or being passive. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, we'll get into this more in a little bit, but from a strategic standpoint, allowing other people to initiate and take control makes it very difficult to regain it once you've lost it. And sometimes you never get it back. If you have somebody who's fairly competent and they, they seize control initiative or whatever you'd want to call it, it can be, they may never allow you to get it back. You can be at a disadvantage. Um, but, but, it, but it is about that control and influence. And I, I think a level of mastery, there's a difference between taking brute level control of somebody and just mm -hmm. being very elegant and with a soft touch because you've just got such mastery of, of movement and connection and, and those things. And I think <clears throat> if anything, I've, I've seen people that, that had, they either see or they admire that level of light touch that it takes decades to, to get. And they kind of want a shortcut to get there. They don't want to get there through the, you know, being a brute, you kind of have to learn that elegance over time. Yeah. I mean, I always thought that the epitome of that was Nisho Shoji. Mm. Oh, God, he was good. Yeah. And he, he never used more 
force than was necessary for anything. I mean, it, mm-hmm. and it had this amalgam of judo and karate and aikido and mm-hmm. oh, that is wonderful. Um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, God, I, lo- I lost the thought when I got rhapsodizing about Nishio. Um, <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. Um, well, if it comes back to you, just jump in with it. But uh, right. the, the, kind of the next thing I think is the feeling and the attitude of, I guess what you call it, that feeling of enlightenment that people tend to have over thinking that, well, because I'm, I'm peaceful and I'm passive and I'm, I'm, you know, not being provocative that this tranquility comes over me, which is great when you have your own uh, environment where there is, there's no potential conflict. You're either Mm -hmm. by yourself or, you're among like minds who are all being peaceful, but the real world tends to bring in, you encounter those who would be provocative or those who would make demands upon you or that you wouldn't normally agree to, but you know, whether it's some combination of intimidation or um, demands, they, they push your boundaries. And then what, what do you do? And I think that it's, it's that, um, that enlightened attitude that can seem to be very, uh, what would be a good word for it? Misplaced. Um, And and that's, unfortunately, there's some Aikido people that have really come across as being moral superior or, you know, because (laughs) of their enlightenment and the fact that, you know, they would, they would only defend themselves or act defensively yet, it, it just seems misplaced. Like I, mm-hmm. when I run across those people, I don't get the feeling like they have the ability to take control. They don't have the will or the intention, much less the ability. Um, so actually, I, the, it's actually related to this. I, that thought came back to me. Okay, great. Um, so I wrote a, an essay a little while ago on my Kogen Budo site. It's K-O-G-E-N-B-U-D-O.org. And it was about sensei and fighting and pacifism and bruce bookman told me a story uh that yamada sensei told him that you know the the young deshi used to go out drinking and they would get in fights and then sometimes they come home with tattered clothes and a bloody lip or something like that and so the question is well how did osensei feel about that and if they came home and they won He'd be like, oh, you're bad boys. Aikido is peaceful and you shouldn't be doing that. Mm-hmm. If they came home and they lost, he would hit the roof. Really? Yeah. Just sort of by the record, you know. So okay. his, he, just, his he, day, did, he didn't approve of his students losing? Yes, he did not approve of his students losing. There's a difference between winning and losing. Right? Definitely. Yeah. So I'm going to. The sun's chasing me again. I'm going to move yeah. again. Well, while you're doing that, because I do remember that um, it was Gozo Shioda that was notorious for getting in fights uh, to, to basically test his Aikido, is the, what I had heard of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you can tell with his movements and how explosive he was that he, uh, he definitely had practical skills uh, in abundance. Um, 
you know, I know it's good having so much film of him because I think he's one of the one of the um, one of the practitioners of of his contemporary era that had probably the most footage for us to look at. Um, but just to see how how sudden his movements were when he needed to move, uh, you know, and and crisp. Well, you know. Um... Aikido has always had um, the guy, the Aikikai has always had the guy who handled the challenges. Hmm. And there's a biography of Shirata Rinjiro uh, somewhere on the Aikido Journal site. It was translated by Doug Walker. Mm -hmm. And it has accounts of Shirata handling the challenges. Mm -hmm. um, at one point, Chiba Sensei was the guy. Kato Sensei was the guy. Um, Shibata, when I was training at the home, he was the guy. And somebody would come in one challenge the dojo. They'd been invited up to the third story, you know, the third floor dojo, uh, fourth floor dojo. The door would close, and then somebody would come out bloody, and Shibata would be walking them out or whatever. So they've always had that, just for the record. Um, and there's a story I have in Hidden. Do they Lane still have that? I think so. Okay. Um, there's how a, common uh, that is uh, these days. A story Mike Scoss told me. Mike is, you know, one of his mm -hmm. uh, trained forever in Japan and all that. Mm -hmm. And one day he was training with this French guy who was another one of the real stalwart uh, non Japanese at the Aikikai at the time. And Doshu comes over and he says, You know, you two guys are going to probably be opening up a dojo in your own country someday and there's some things you need to know and he started to teach them what in description is daitoryu how to do a shihonage and maneuver in a way that they drop right on the top of their head and other what mike said was other people were gathering around and that always used to happen when dochu would teach everyone would stop we'd all you know watch and dochu goes this isn't for you go back to practice and he was like having them do the technique and then an irimi-nage that should go into like kind of a neck break or something like that. And he's spotting them as they do it so they can get as close to fulfilling the technique without anybody getting hurt. Which is something, you know, I mean, I, I took a fair amount of ukemi for a period of about a year for the second doshu. And in some ways, you know, he, for a little guy, uh, he really could, was pretty precise and powerful. But one never thought, you know, he, he's the leg breaker of the dojo or anything like that. But nonetheless, you know, when people say, ah, oh, he didn't get the real thing, so-and-so got, I mean, seriously, he went to the same classes as all those guys who got the real thing. And he lived with his father, right? You think his father didn't show him stuff because his father wouldn't want to be embarrassed if he got beat up. Right. Right. So. so there is that subtext in Aikido of uh, uh, it's still the same as Daitoryu. You know, the there's some films by Guillaume Erard of the Shikoku Daitoryu faction. Mm. And I think they are the most interesting to watch because it's very rugged, harsh jujitsu where it's recognizably the same family from which Aikido emerged. Mm -hmm. 
And you see how those Aikido techniques that have all the edges smoothed out, if you didn't smooth out the edges, what would they look like? And I think those guys show that really clearly. Sure. Well, and that's the perfect uh, transition into talking about the physical difference, mm -hmm. the physical aspect. Um, and, and I think you're right. I think that you know, a lot of Aikido has been smoothed out to be more of a demonstration art than it has because it, it just in an actual confrontation it's not as smooth and pretty and elegant and um and it's still effective the, the techniques themselves haven't really changed fundamentally i guess the only argument you could say that they, they have in that if the focus is on merely being smooth and elegant and you don't have that underlying practicality there then those edges are not just smooth but they're the technique is soft or it can it would not hold up to being used to, for, in, a, in a practical sense yeah yeah okay so two things i wanted to that come to mind mm -hmm. so the first thing is when i was entered aikido they said well there are two aspects there's itami and tenkan mm -hmm. entering and turning but that is not what ueshiba said and if you look at his old books the, the old books that he wrote um, or were written under his instruction. He said, there's idemi and idemi denkan. So what that means is there's always idemi. And when Ueshiba talked about, uh, you know, the, the, the percentage changes, uh, Aikido is 90% atemi, Aikido is 70% atemi. So atemi does not mean pugilism. What atemi means is you have a body that hits. In other words, any part of my body to make contact with you, you're going to get an impact from that. And in order to do that, you will need to enter. Right. You need to enter and you need to have a trained body, which goes back to the Aiki body and all of that. Mm -hmm. But you need to have the ability that if, if my shoulder makes contact with you, that's going to be shocking. If mm -hmm. my hip makes contact, that's going to be shocking. Any part of the body should be a hitting body. So, um, and all of that comes from entering. So Tenkan is when you enter and the person is good enough to forestall to some degree your entry movement, then you spiral around it. Don't turn sure. around it. It's you're finding another position of advantage while maintaining contact. So it's not enter, mm -hmm. turn around. It's enter and kind of smoosh around. Okay. Right? That reminds me of the of in the Western martial arts that uh, you talk about swordsmanship that get in a bind where the both swords collide and then you roll across and roll around, which yes. is very similar to the Ukenagashi movement in Japanese swordsmanship. Yeah. And um, interestingly, Ukenagashi is often taught without the bind or without the impact. So, right. And I, um, many years ago, I was training with one of my training brothers and we were studying Ukenagashi. And the way we do it is we drop levels and come up underneath the person. And then, so they're driven back a little, and then we do the cut. Mm. And my train partner had a Jikishin Kageryu Boken, which is like a small log. Okay. Uh, and I was cutting the tolerances more and more and more because it was so cool and I was getting really good at it. Mm. And so one time I really thought, you know, in my heart of hearts, I'm going to be able to do it without the entry. Mm -hmm. And because there was no forestalling of his movement, no eating me, he just kept coming and he cracked me full force. 
with this Jikishin Kagyu Boken. And I literally did see stars and all that. And what I remember is I didn't stagger back. I careened back across the dojo. It was a gymnasium. And basically into a mirror. And if you remember the old cartoons when people would be hit with frying pans. Right. Uh, Warner Brothers. They're, mm-hmm. they're too violent for our children today. And the same thing happened. That I was just staring at myself like this. And all of a sudden this bump started growing, filling of blood, and then it split open as blood sort of run down my face. And part of me going, wow, that's cool. <laughs> Other part was, <laughs> and, you know, to this day, I've got scar tissue under here. I can sort of tell when it's going to rain, you know, because mm-hmm. of humidity. Yeah. But it was a classic example of when I eliminated Edomy and just tried to turn around the technique, if my partner has integrity, they'll cut me. So, mm-hmm. so Edomy has got to be part of it, which then leads to the question, and here's where we get to it, is Aikido a defensive art? And people will say, well, they strike Shomenuchi, and then I do whatever, I counter it. Mm-hmm. And that's the frame of uh, uh, a defensive art. So let's take this two ways. Is a counterpuncher in boxing defensive? People who don't understand boxing would say, yeah, like they punch and I counterpunch. But that's not true because what's happening with a counterpuncher is he or these days she is managing my. Mm-hmm. So they are attacking through spacing and through kiai. And kiai is not and a timing. Shot. Ki is timing. It's the manipulation of psychology. So you are absolutely convinced you're going to hit me. But I have mastered this to a degree. I know just as you're initiating the movement, you are not going to. My counterpunch hits before your punch. That wasn't a defensive move. That was an aggressive move. If, you know, the great, greatest counterpuncher of modern times is Floyd Mayweather. And if somebody were to just look at one of his bouts, He's aggressive throughout. Very much. Yeah. yeah. The, and and I, I think counterpunching is one of those that, that is the best argument for the defensive, but it's based on, like, just like you pointed out, when people believe, okay, I'm the counterpuncher and I'm going to sit and wait and watch for you to strike, I'm not passively waiting. I still have to get in the right range, be in the right position, have, I mean, I'm, it's like I'm pulling an, uh, the, the string back on a, on a bow with mm-hmm. an arrow in it, red, cocked and ready to go. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing passive about that. Right, right. You have the initiative. Right. And, and maybe I maneuver you around to give you the signal or the opening to bait you into taking the shot that I want you to take to give me the opportunity for my arena. Um, and what I've found, and I, I've encountered counter punchers, I, I did a bit of it when I competed, although I found that it was very demanding. It, there is, if you're a counter puncher, there is no room for a mistake or your mistiming. It is very high risk and it's high, it's very demanding. Mm-hmm. Um, I found it much more reliable to take control of an engagement early on where somebody's responding to me rather than I am trying to time my response to them. Um, and I think that that's it, it, some good competition uh, 
sparring experience really will point that out. But to, for those people, the martial artists that have not done that, it's very hard to describe it and have them appreciate how tricky being a good counterpuncher, being an effective counterpuncher is. You know, the jazz critic, Stanley Crouch, who loved boxing, mm -hmm. he said, boxing is the only activity where you get somebody else to participate in their own knockout. Right. Mm -hmm. right? So that's all about initiative. Mm -hmm. So now if we talk about where, the way Ueshibu is educated, classic Japanese sword, there are these three principles, go no sen, sen no sen, and sen sen no sen. So let's start with sen sen no sen. Sen sen no sen is you and I square off. Before you even move, I know where you're going to be and I cut you down. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, somebody said, oh, uh, you, you're the equivalent of a sucker punch. No, there's an initiation. We're in a, a fight, but I am at such a high level of perception, of management of all the components we just were talking about and more, that you're cut down before you initiate. You know, uh, you know, I, I, I one time had one of my students and we were uh, uh, we were actually working on uh, Kodachi, which is short sword against Diofundo, which is uh, a short chain with weights. And we were doing uh, freestyle. And I kept hitting him. I was using the, the chain. And he kept moving and before, or trying to move, and before he moved, he was hit. And he says to me, what are you doing to me? Because the perception he had was I was somehow manipulating him in a way, you know, hypnotism or something like that. And it wasn't that at all. It was just that he was leaking intention. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so that's sense in those sense. Sen no sen. Actually, before we jump to sen no sen, I'd, I'd like to comment on this too, because this is something that I've worked with people and, and talked because I, I've felt this and had this happen many times. If you face somebody and you're both ready, if you initiate, they will are in a ready state and will respond to you, usually by an effective block or evasion or something like that. But when you face off, and you watch them, and like you said, when they leak their intention, when they when they are starting to assess, they said, okay, well, my opponent's not moving yet. Maybe I should do something. Okay, well, what am I gonna, okay, here, I think I know what I'm gonna do. And right between the time they make that decision and they start to move, that you that is your opportunity because their brain is already engaged in its processing. And you can usually watch that um, with, there are physical cues and tells that, people often give and they're not all the same of course but it's very rare to see somebody who has no physical tells or will not transmit or leak that that thought process but if you, you catch them in the middle of thinking and executing before they actually move to me that's what sen sen no sen is described on a very physical slash mental level it's i don't think it's mystical at all i've seen people kind of think that it's mystical or has some kind of supernatural no, no. almost quality but it's not it's it's reading people kind of like a, a poker player can read stress you know, I, uh, one of my teachers and trained brothers a guy named don gula who developed a, a, a mixed martial art for law enforcement called arresting uh there's some pretty cool videos of his work on youtube these days 
and I remember the first time I rolled with him and he's so many levels above me. He started giving me a running commentary of what I was intending to do before I moved. And, oh, you're thinking of a, you know, a, think of a Kimura right there. No, 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 Sparky. You know, and then yeah. I, I'd, I'd react. And, you know, then he'd be, he's always a step ahead. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, he was reading my physicality, mm-hmm. right? So Sen no Sen is, is um, the two of us attack. I take the initiative. So the epitome of Sen no Sen can be something like Kiryo Toshi, which is the fundamental sword technique in Itoryu. Itoryu's grandchild is Daitoryu, which means that what Ueshiba is doing goes back to Itoryu. And it's two objects can't occupy the same space at the same time. I take the initiative, cut through. All you can do is be deflected. Mm. Right? Gonosen is the one that's said to be reactive, that you move and I then attack. And so Aikido is framed sometimes in Japanese as a Gonosen art. In fact, Daito you too. Takeda Tokimune referred to, um, he said, Aiki is Gonosen. And Kiai is Sen no Sen. Mm. And so on one level, oh, it's defensive. But again, this is counterpunching. Mm-hmm. Right? It is not defensive. And without initiative, without Irimi, it doesn't exist. Mm. Right? So it is fair to say that one of the things that Aikido, in its purest form, what Aweshibu was striving to teach, was Gonosen. But he was also teaching Sen-no-Sen because if you look at his old texts, they explicitly, for example, Ikkyo would be a temi, the person raises their hand, and you do Ikkyo to him. Right. And so even at the latter level, then Ueshi was like sort of gesturing, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether now we were at a level where his students were colluding with him, which is a fair assumption, he was an old man and all that, or he had his timing down perfectly, uh, Dobson said that, you know, Ueshi could pull a technique out just with a glance and you would find yourself attacking a certain way. And if you didn't do the right attack, he'd be pissed at you, so to speak. So that was the metric. Um, but the point here being the only way Aikido could be termed, in my view, defensive, and that's still not the right word, is that in its ethics, you're not looking for a fight, right? Right. Mm-hmm. You're not going around saying, you know what? I've never tested my Aikido. I'm going to go do X, Y, and Z. Right. Right. Um, there was a martial artist in the Seattle area named Sid Woodcock, who was a very controversial figure uh, and uh, claimed to do some kind of Aikijujutsu and all kinds of stuff. He, um, one thing Sid used to do, because I think Sid was a psychopath myself, uh, based on his own self accounts. Mm-hmm. But one thing he would do is he'd take a young student and he'd be curious, Sid would be curious if a certain technique would work. Mm-hmm. And so he'd say, you know, I'm going to give you special training. Here is the one technique which will take you all the way. And he'd drill him and drill him in that technique for months. Then he'd say, let's go out drinking. And you go to some bar, low-class bar, and uh, you sort of wander over, look for some tough guy. 
and say, hey, that's, see that kid over here? He was making fun of you. He was calling you up. And he set the kid up, who he'd only taught one technique to. And then the fight would start, and Sid would watch and see how the technique worked. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so there's the one extreme, right? Right. And so, so I, you know, I ain't supposed to be that. Mm -hmm. But so if you're not looking for a fight, does that mean you're defensive or does that just mean you're living your life? Mm -hmm. And if someone aggresses upon you, are you merely defensive in the sense that, oh, I pulled his attack out and turned it against him? Or do you do what has to happen, which is you take the initiative? Mm -hmm. And, you know, as Ueshiba said in 1921, Aiki is a method of making other people do what you want them to do. Right. Well, and, and I like the idea that that Aikido and is not about starting fights, it's about ending them. Mm -hmm. But in order to end them, that can that can get sticky and that can get physical. And, and you may need to enter the physical realm and be able to succeed there. Yeah. Um, uh, to me, that's the, the about the simplest formula of the whole thing is no, you shouldn't be a bully and shouldn't be a jackass and go around provoking fights. But uh, the idea that you back off of aggression, uh, at that point, you're just kind of praying for mercy and hoping that that somebody's, you know, will stop because, you know, you're just being nice. Yeah. And I think that's a that's a dangerous thing because predators and and those who you know bullies and things like that if they are rewarded by their behavior they'll certainly do more of it and that's on an individual level and on a society level i think you know i think it really comes down to this that people confuse aikido skill with character shirata rinjiro was considered by many to be in his prime the top living aikidoka uh, in the 1930s, early 1930s. Um, there's a story I've heard from several sources, again, again, it's just a story, but Doshu alluded to it in his book, that when Ueshiba was going down to Osaka to teach at the Takumakai, uh, Shirata was one of his assistants, and at a certain point, there was apparently some sort of a testing match between Hisa Takuma and uh, uh, Shirata, who managed Hisa quite easily okay so again uh perhaps the other side would say no it never happened and all of this stuff but the point being he had tremendous respect not only for his skill but his power he was supposed to be super physically powerful i mean even as an old man you see the wrists i saw him one time his wrists were so thick just the bones mm -hmm. and the hands were like like rose bushes they were just huge um and he was a gentleman he was a sweet guy, um, lovely man. I can think of other people who were his contemporaries, who trained along with him, who learned the same skills, who were awful people. And to me, I go always go back to the you know the Greek philosophers that that believe that a complete human being needed to have both the physical capability as well as the philosophical and moral strength mm -hmm. of understanding with with martial prowess without that character 
you're just a brute. But if you have the moral character without the physical prowess, you're basically just a victim. You know, you you will not be able to protect yourself, your family, your society, your nation, or you know, what have you. And I, I think that that balance is is important. And and um, for any martial artist, whether they're Aikidoists or not, and I I get how the, the they're drawn to the philosophy and the and the I don't know if I could use the term morality, but ethics probably be be a part of that of being a good person. I mean, absolutely, every human being needs that, but you know the you balance know, is you have to have the horsepower if you are going to defend your virtue mm -hmm. to, in mm -hmm. order to do so you know um some listeners may be familiar with a guy named dan harden and mm -hmm. dan said something to me one time i thought that really just epitomized aikido and a high level understanding of aikido he said that you know daito you in a sense put somebody in a space smaller than they can sustain their integrity, postural integrity. Mm -hmm. What Aikido does, if it's done right, is it takes people right to the edge of that state and then opens it up. So it gives them an escape route. And I, I don't know if it was me who came over or Dan said originally, like a, a opening up a flower. Mm -hmm. right? But, you know, if I said it, I got the image from talking to Dan, you know, sure. but, the, but the point he was making, which I think is so important is you can't start with open, right? You have to take, if, if you're going to control and establish sort of peace with powerfully, mm -hmm. you have to have the ability to take that person to a point where you have them totally under your control. And then you relinquish that control. And if you will think of that as a moral teaching, because, um, if I did that with somebody who was deranged and all they did is they fly away and then they come back having now picked up a piece of angle iron, I've done something uh, less than effective. I've actually made the situation worse because now to control them, I'm going to have to damage them more because it's escalated. So if you will, if there's mental or spiritual training, it's being able to judge a situation of when to let them go and when not to. Right. And again, yeah, I think that it's one thing, it's one thing to assume that you're always dealing with somebody who's at least some, to some degree rational or open to reason, mm -hmm. but that's not always the case. Either they still have what they want from you in their head and they're not going to shift that out until they get it, or they may just not have access to reason at all. Yeah. But, you know, that derangement that you talked about. Now, what's interesting, uh, just a sort of parenthesis, is I met a small group of guys who were correctional officers at Corcoran State Prison in California. Mm -hmm. And they had a little Aikido club. Mm -hmm. And talked to these guys, and they said, yeah, Aikido has worked impeccably for us in these situations. And remember, that's a good endorsement. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and these guys, once something went on, they had to take complete control. Mm -hmm. right? They couldn't sort of say, see, now you understand I'm superior to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's. And they had right. to do it in a way that was, and here's what's also interesting. They had to use the skill in a way that wasn't abusive. And Corcoran State used to be a hellhole. And then it was uh, uh, reformed to a considerable degree. I don't know what it's like now, but it certainly isn't what it used to be. It was really a terrible terrible place mm -hmm. but if these correctional officers are going to be unscathed 
they have to engender some level of respect in the mind of the person that they totally subdued. Yeah. It was in proportion. Because if it was out of proportion, that puts every correctional officer at risk. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And so what, as best I understood what these guys were telling me is the Aikido that they were training enabled them to truly manage physically other individuals and to keep in control while they were doing it. And I guess that's why, why I appreciate uh, Aikido so much that unlike the combatives and, and that realm seems to have been really flourishing these last few years, five years mm-hmm. or so with, uh, you know, pretty hardcore combatives is that there's not a way to start with influencing and if that doesn't work, then you move up to control. If by the time you're doing combatives, it's just unleash hell and mm-hmm. prevail through the, you know, superior application of force. Yeah. And, and, and I like the elegance of trying to do the, the influence part. Maybe that's verbal. Maybe the influence is even positional before you have to go to the full-on physical engagement part. But even within the physical you know, I love Aikido for the fact that it has that variable. You can do a light touch, medium touch, heavy touch, what you think you need for that particular situation. Um, And I think, you know, when people talk about this stuff, I think that anybody who loves Aikido has got to ruthlessly examine each of the techniques they practice to see if that's going to actually help them accomplish that goal. Absolutely. You know, it's, I mean, something as small as the angle is wrong in the entry movement. And if that's going to result in you getting countered or you can say, you know, I got a real hole in my game because there's this whole aspect of how people are are going to interact in a fight Mm -hmm. that is not covered by my training. Right. And, you know, I think it's also a legitimate question to ask since we should be trained in a method of whole body connected intrinsic power is some level of training in that necessary to make the Aikido techniques effective? Mm. Um, Which is a whole other subject. Yeah, but I'd love to talk about that one too on a a future episode. That'd be be great to get into something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But I think you're right. And and even from the aspect of applying a physical technique, I'm thinking back to what you said about Ueshiba's uh, attitude of having that level of control even from a like japan should lead the world like you talk about that on a world stage of okay yes i want harmony but it's because we the world will be led by the japanese that seems to be the same control when you microscope it down to a, a single like two people two individuals interacting the mentality is the same we're gonna have harmony because I'm going to control you, but I'm going to be benevolent in it. I'm not going to be sadistic. I'm not going to try to injure you, but I'm going to maintain control. I mean, and, I see you know, that's scalable. Yeah. And, and, and I think one of the problems that people have when considering this from a perspective on Aikido is there's an assumption of a moral absolutism, that there is one moral uh, choice. Very uh, dangerous belief. And, you know, one of my favorite stories about that uh, concerns a friend of mine, C.W. Nickel, who, great author on nature, um, died a couple of years ago. Now, he's a karateka. Mm-hmm. 
And at one point he was hired to organize a national park of, I believe, 12,000 square miles in Ethiopia. And you read his book and he told me he had to cut half the book because it was him being too violent. Mm. Even so, I mean, this, it's an uncomfortable book to read because he's a foreign white man going into an Ethiopian country and basically saying, all your land where you used to hunt, you're not allowed to hunt here because these are rare animals. They're going to die. This is a world treasure and they're going to die. And there were so many forces against him. And he told me about a situation where um, he was on his own, all by himself. Yeah, on his own, all by himself. Um, far out in the hills. And uh, he was confronted by uh, a tribesman whose people had traditionally hunted in this land for God knows how many years. So now he's a poacher. And that particular tribe had an ethos that you only shoot animals. It is not a manly act to shoot another human being. Hmm. Men fight with sticks and I believe knives. And he had an olive wood staff and he attacked uh, uh, Nick and Nick sidestepped and did a roundhouse kick with his hiking boot right in the guy's ribs mm. and shattered a couple ribs, pierced the guy's lungs. The guy died over a period of some hours. Mm. Nick's looking in his eyes. He's looking in his, Nick's eyes. It's too far to carry. He's on foot. All he could do was hold his hand. They looked at each other and he died. Mm. And Nick was shattered because you've got two competing moralities. Save the planet. This is this man's land. Now it's not his land. Who's right? What's interesting is um, he went to uh, his karate teacher when he got back to Japan, uh, Nakoyama who served in China at the behest of the Japanese government when Japan was conquering China. And he told him this story and he said how devastated he was. And Nagayama just sort of, he attacked you, you killed him. What's wrong with that? Walked away. Mm. Um, so whoever's got a moral absolute on this, from one perspective, you're gonna say, really, it's that simple. Mm -hmm. And so that, to me, that's the whole question of when, when, when folks in Aikido uh, or any martial art talk about this being the way of peace and all that, um, whatever choice you make will probably engender suffering. Mm -hmm. It's going to be harm as well as good. And if nothing else, I think that any martial artist should be really clear about their values. Absolutely. What is morality? When is it justified to use violence? How much violence? Under what circumstances? Mm -hmm. And I don't care what you're doing, be it, you know, Kodyu, combatives, or Aikido, or whatever. You better have those values clear if you're going to live with yourself afterwards. And it's not, it's not quick or easy to flush out either. It's, you, you don't just read a book, you know, or have a little bumper sticker slogan as being your, your uh, first principle. Uh, it, it, there needs to be significant amount of mental investment and, and time and to flush all that out. Um, yeah. yeah. And, you know, so, so Nishio sensei um, 
have this concept of Aikido is Yurusu Budo. Yurusu means to, it's sort of to give, to forbear. And yet Nisho Sensei tried from his own context to train in very effective technique. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, I mean, I saw him as somebody who was really trying to establish that balance between choosing to study how to harm people and trying to find a way to minimize that harm whenever possible. Sure. And I, and I think that that touches on the same level of responsibility as learning firearms or any type of a you know, dangerous or deadly weapon there's a great responsibility that goes with that ability, the ability to cause harm. Um, and, you know, with, with the techniques that we use hand to hand, you know, one would say, well, it's not really as deadly, but it's that defensive part. And, you know, even when people say, well, what about defensive knife or defensive handgun? You know, I've got a great demonstration where I'll, I'll just take a, a cane walking stick and I'll, I'll put a plastic gun or a knife in their hand and say, okay, I'm going to swing this at your head and you show me the defense. You know, how, how good of a defensive tool a handgun or a knife is. Because um, you don't block with it. All you really do is cause damage. And that's that is kind of the, the same thing as the, the combative. If de- defensive just means you destroy your attacker, uh, very quickly before they get a chance to harm you is that defensive versus, you know, can you actually protect yourself? Can you actually defend your body from a strike or attack, you know, kind of getting into the the weapons thing a bit there, but um, it's, there are different aspects of that defensive label that, and I, and I, to me, at the end of the day, it does come down to that moral. Did you walk away having been unharmed where had you not taken action, you would have been harmed or an innocent person. Um, and, you know, I, I, it's almost as I'm sitting here thinking, you know, uh, it's almost like the term defensive could get in the way of clarity in this for the. I agree. Market. Yeah. You know, uh, I think you get the one question is effectively protecting yourself and um, protection includes who are you responsible for protecting? Mm-hmm. Right. Because if I stay in my house, I never have to run into the responsibility of protecting somebody else. Mm-hmm. Right? But to me, safety or protection is defined by who you are responsible for protecting. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah, example I use, if I look out my window right now and I see an adult about to punch a child in the face, I hope to God I'll do what I've done in the past, which is I'm going to run out and interfere with that. Mm-hmm. If I see two adult males engaged in chest bumping and mutual combat i'm not going to jump between them mm-hmm. i might call law enforcement because they're disturbed in my neighborhood that's mm-hmm. what law enforcement's for but i'm not going to jump between two adult males engaged in mutual combat mm-hmm. right so safety or, or protection is defined by who i'm responsible for protecting mm-hmm. and then the other issue that's the one hand and the other issue is morality and i've got to frame that in uh values which may be the values of the society in which I live, or sometimes it has to be in contradiction to the values of the society in which I live, because my society may be fostering something that's truly immoral. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are no absolutes on the, on the subject yeah. of that morality and ethics. And it's, I hate it when I hear people just say, well, it's just run away, just walk away, or just, you know, you put that word just in there. And now you've removed all of the intricacies of and the difficulties of, of having such simple rules of engagement. <laughs> you know, you know, there's this internet meme 
uh, where the martial arts guy goes, let me show you the best defense against a knife. And then mm -hmm. they confront and then the guy runs away. Mm -hmm. Well, number one, I figure anybody, who, if I ever was in a situation where I'm confronted by a knife, they're probably 40 or 50 years younger than me. Mm -hmm. Probably can run a lot faster. I got two bad knees. I can't run. Mm -hmm. So that's not even an option for me. Right. How about if you got a kid, mm -hmm. right. Or you're accompanied by, you know, your mom or, or, or your, your partner. So that kind of simplistic stuff. Right. Yeah. So anyway, there yeah, we are. This has been really, really good. I, I, I we could just keep talking for hours and hours and I know you've got some stuff to do today and I do too. Uh, but I would love to have you back and, you know, figure out the next subject. And I'm thinking that, um, you know, Weishaba and the, the physical power of his technique might be a good episode to get into, but I'm sure I can figure out a bunch more as well. So yeah. um, is there anything you wanted to wrap up or, or with or, or add on? No, I think I'm good. Excellent. Well, this has been fantastic. I really enjoyed this discussion. It, it went some un unexpected places and I heard some stuff that I've never heard before, which is super cool. And I think everybody's going to really enjoy it. So thank you very much, Alice. It was great to have you on the show. Thanks, Tristan. Have a good one. Thank you. You too. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this discussion. Stay tuned for more episodes. I've got some great stuff on the way very soon. In the meantime, enjoy your training.